0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamari, Managing Director of Elcat Global. It's my great pleasure to have with us today Rosemary Coates, who is the Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute and President of Blue Silk Consulting, a global supply chain consulting company. She's a, a, as well an Amazon best-selling author with five global supply chain books, including the Reshoring Guidebook and Forty Two Rules for Sourcing and Manufacturing in China. She's been a management consultant for 25 years. Has worked with more than 80 global supply chain clients. Serves on the board of directors of Kinetic River and the University of San Diego Supply Chain Management Institute, as well as teaches at the global uh, teaches supply global supply chain strategy at UC Berkeley. So, Rosemary, great pleasure and thanks for making the time to join us today.
1: Yes, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you.
0: Super. So I wanted to I wanted to start because it's a, it's a topic I think uh, decoupling reshoring moving manufacturing is a big topic on a lot of people's agenda on a lot of supply chain executives and well executives in general really. So I wanted to start first with a question on what's the current status of decoupling? Is change happening now? Right, we have a lot of discussions. Is it going to happen in six months, twelve months, eighteen months? Longer plans. How is it going?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we've been doing both offshoring and reshoring for a while now, six or seven years at the Reshoring Institute. And I have a long history and background in offshoring to China. I helped lots of companies move there and set up their operations there. And I think we've seen kind of a slow tide of bringing some or thinking about a lot of executives thinking about bringing some manufacturing back to the US and decoupling from China. And sort of over time, we saw, you know, some interest there. But the global pandemic really, really kicked it into high gear. And so now we see an awful lot of companies are coming to us and asking for assistance as well as designing a new global strategy. So, yeah, there's some decoupling. You know, there were a few things over time that in the U.S., the tax rates were extremely high on manufacturing. So in 2017, uh, Congress passed a law to reduce the tax rate on manufacturing. And that helped a little bit. Although, you know, there was an expectation a lot of manufacturing would come back because of that. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. (laughs) Reducing the tax rate didn't cause big investment in manufacturing as we expected. It just lowered the tax rate for manufacturers. And then the tariffs, of course, you know, starting the trade war has been a huge burden on manufacturing in the U.S. Um, So some Americans don't quite understand the economics of it. But essentially an import tax or a tariff like that is a additional burden on anybody who's doing importing, which translates into most American manufacturers import either products or at least part, some assemblies and so forth. And that burden was borne by them. And you know, a lot of manufacturers try to pass it on to customers, but a lot of them just absorb the additional cost. And so that has been, you know, a difficult Pathway for most manufacturers in the US. But the pandemic, oh man, you know, it just caused manufacturers to sit up and take notice and understand where they have so many risks and liabilities and not enough inventory and manufacturing the wrong things for the marketplace. And it just created all kinds of rethinking and strategy. So now we're seeing a pretty significant wave in companies considering decoupling or designing a different kind of global strategy. So maybe it's a China plus one or bring some parts back to the U.S. or just thinking about regional manufacturing. There's all all kinds of pathways, I think. But Clearly, a change is in the wind, for sure.
0: And, uh, and I was talking just yesterday with, with one of our one of our clients who runs uh, a big transportation, international transportation company in the region, in APEC, and, and he was saying that in retrospect, right, I mean, actually, he was quite shocked that a lot of companies, you know, had three providers somewhere in a small town, well, not so small, maintaining proportions in China, and, and they never thought that, well, there's a risk that if something happens... What, what do we do? So uh, indeed now the China plus one or something to that extent is, is in the books for a lot of companies, if they didn't have one. I wanted to ask specifically, how do you see things in five years down the line, right? It's a question that we received before we recorded this because specifically how much of China for China is made in China? How much is exported from China to other markets? U.S., of course. How much is, you know, U.S. for U.S.? How how do how do you see these dynamics playing out?
1: Yeah, so as a, as you introduced me, you know, I run the Reshoring Institute, and and we're a nonprofit organization that helps companies think about their global manufacturing strategy. And it's sort of misnamed because it isn't just about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. It's really about designing a global strategy, and I think you know companies are taking that step at this point. But, you know, in the manufacturing world, nothing happens overnight. It takes a while. So when you ask, what do I see five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I, I see that there's an evolution going on in manufacturing. So it used to be, you know, my clients would talk about the lowest cost they could get. Could I help them move to China, find sources there? Because there was a general perception it was lower cost. Today, those same executives are saying, How do we mitigate risk? Which is a different question. So, you know, it may mean that some operations are more expensive. It may mean that they're moving to different regions. So, there's, you know, that pathway. But then I think there's also a higher level of recognition amongst executives about their global marketplace. So, you know, executives now are finding that there are. A lot of their customers are in Asia. Asia is where growth is happening, right? It's it's not happening that much in the U.S. or Europe or other play other traditional countries where we looked at growth markets, but it's all over Asia. So you know, doesn't it make sense to at least keep part of your manufacturing in Asia? Now, what country in Asia is another question. So you know, I really see these executives who. In the past, we're very focused on cost and cost alone. Now thinking more strategically and taking into consideration other variables in the equation to where to manufacture in the world.
0: Mm. So on this topic, and we are also getting a question from Felix that sits in in Mexico. Where do you see this? I mean, where do you see this? It's I guess you can call them lower cost. I mean, let's let's use the word lower cost manufacturing locations that might thrive after this, you know, conflicts and trade wars and all of this. You know, is it Southeast Asia? Is it Mexico? Is it Eastern Europe? Northern Africa? I don't know. What's what's uh, you know? It obviously can be a few of them.
1: Well, it's interesting you ask that because we just finished at the Reshoring Institute. We have two goals. So, one is to um, help companies bring manufacturing back or consider their international or global manufacturing strategy. And the other goal is that we teach graduate student interns about manufacturing. So these graduate students that are very smart and very ambitious and very energetic are put to work doing different projects. One of the projects that we just finished, and we haven't published the results yet, but we had one of our interns work on a comparison of labor costs in about, I think, 12 countries around the world. So, 20 categories of labor costs compared country by country. Really interesting study. And what you find is that, you know, there are places like in central Mexico where uh, labor costs are comparable to the cost in China, right? And there are also very low cost environments like Bangladesh, for example where you might want to locate manufacturing that has high labor content or high labor, high touch content. So when you have a lot of labor that can swing the economics one way or another, where you have more advanced manufacturing, more automation, more robotics, more 3D printing, then that shifts the equation maybe the other way and potentially evaluating whether or not you could actually operate in the United States by extracting that labor. So, you know, when you you think about it, I mean, there's lots of different complex ideas here. If you're going to bring back manufacturing to the U.S., for example, it's not going to mean that all the jobs that left and went to China over the past 25 years are all going to come back. That's, That's not what, number one, not what we want to come back. And it's not what's likely to come back. So what we really want to develop is advanced manufacturing, advanced skills for manufacturing environment and leave the low skilled, low cost labor jobs in a low cost country. So for example, if you are a t shirt manufacturer and you know you're making t shirts for 50 cents a piece, that's not the kind of that's not the kind of manufacturing. That the U.S. wants to attract back, because it doesn't pay a living wage in in America, and if it doesn't pay a living wage, then the government has to supplement the wages with economic policy. So, you know, what we want to do is shed that lower level, um, lower skilled labor to developing countries where it makes a difference for them to to put people to work at at you know low costs like that. And what we want to attract to the more developed countries is the more skilled, more advanced labor. So we want people to learn how to run the machine tools, right? Or run the computers or run the robots or be able to repair the 3D printer. So, you know, those are higher level skills, right? So you you have to, you know, this is where I think people miss the boat, is they don't think about the whole ecosystem around the world. It's it's not just one country or one manufacturing sector or one microcosm. Now, you know, we live and operate in a global environment and you have to really consider, you know, all the aspects of it. Really, you have to think about these bigger, bigger ideas and and how the economics push, push results around the world.
0: uh, to to this point and also this in you know, a discussion relatively recently and then if you talk about high-tech or manufacturing, I don't know, laptops, for example, electronics, it's a pretty complex ecosystem that was built over time. You have from okay, the, the manufacturing plant, let's say it's probably the easiest to take it from wherever it is, China, Southeast Asia or whatever, Japan, put it somewhere else. But the whole ecosystem around that plant, from you know, obviously the logistics, the roads, the ports, the trade and regulations and and government support uh, skills is not that easy to you know talent to operate the plant is not that easy to translate and there's been whole ecosystems that have been created so how do you see and at the same time you have the trade war right so then you know there's different tariffs that have come into play and 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 all of that how do you see this playing out on the on the long term because this is not at all easy to just overnight pack your bags and and go
1: well, you know, so the pandemic really caused manufacturers and the population, particularly in the U.S., and I'm sure it was true most in most of the world, to consider you know where they had shortages and where they couldn't meet demand. So let me give you a couple of examples. So both laptops and disinfectant wipes, so a Lysol or a Clorox wipe that you use to kill germs on surfaces, Those are two products that were in very short supply. And of course, we know PPE and respirators and all of that. And that sort of got straightened out, I think, in general, fairly quickly, within a month or two. But laptops are still in very short supply. And disinfectant wipes, I live in Silicon Valley, and I cannot get disinfectant wipes. sort of my pet peeve these days because it's a very simple product. It's in a plastic bottle, right? And it's like paper towels inside in a, in a Clorox solution. Very simple, very easy to manufacture. And yet we cannot meet the demand after nine months, right? It's just so frustrating to me because, you know, our supply chain people should be good enough to get those things out in the marketplace fast but they haven't been able to. Now when you look at computers, laptops in particular, they are also in very short supply. And that's because you know all our students are working from home. <laughs> all of us are working from home and there's a, a very high demand especially for low-end laptops for students. And they're in very short supply as well. But when you think about the complexity of a laptop, right? So you've got engineered products You've got electronics in it. You've got, you're going to need rare earth elements for wiring and you need circuitry. And I mean, this is complicated. This is, while a laptop may seem like it's pretty easy, the supply chain is quite complicated. And so what's happened is the supply chains have developed all around those manufacturers. Like you were saying, the whole ecosystem for manufacturing a laptop may be located in one geography in order to support, you know, Lenovo or one of the big brands, Samsung. And it's not so easy to just pick up that manufacturing and move it to another location. So you think about that versus the Clorox wipes which you should be able to manufacture anywhere, right? I mean, in any location all over the world and supply easily produce supply to meet the demand. And we're not been able to do that. So I think, you know, when I take a step back and think about this, it's frustrating to me that we don't have better supply chain people out there, To quite honestly. I mean, I think, you know, supply chain professionals need to, you know, think about how well they perform during this. Um, you know, it, it's, it's time people sat up and took notice and understood they need to be more thoughtful, think more strategically, look for risk avoidance opportunities, um, plan for mitigation of risk and other things other events that are going to happen. You know right now in america we're in California we're dealing with these horrible wildfires as i 'm sure you 've seen on the news, and in the Gulf Coast in the southern states, we're in the midst of having a terrible hurricane that 's flooding all kinds of things. When these kind of disasters happen, obviously, there are shortages of all kinds of stuff all over the place. And it behooves supply chain people to think about this as a potential risk. And what products do their companies produce and what should they have on hand and what can they expect? You know, we know there are fires and hurricanes every year, so we ought to be prepared for that, Right so, you know, supply chain people have got to develop on and think strategically at a higher level instead of traditionally, we've been really focused on execution. Now it's time to think about strategy.
0: Oh, indeed. Could not agree more. And and I think that there are a lot of very good professionals and, and supply chain executives that have stepped up to the challenge. And also the companies now, uh, if anything, COVID-19 has definitely helped elevate the importance role and, you know, has broken up boards in general and CEOs, oh, you know, supply chain is critical and mission critical to our business. Otherwise, we might just go bust because we can't deliver to our clients. We, I saw a statistic and I wanted to run it by you. We, I also see some questions coming in. You know, there were, I think there was like 30 or 35%, a super high percentage of companies. I'm not going to quote the, the research company name, but it's a reputable one. But To me, it made no sense, saying that 30 to 35% are already moving out of China. And I'm like, gosh in the middle of COVID-19 you're going to do that because there's you know one you have COVID-19 right and two it's not that easy to 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 go right so I guess my question is what are some of the hurdles to do that right because I know that you specifically researched on that and you wrote extensively on that so I'd like to touch upon that point
1: yeah you know this is an area that um, a lot of people overlook So, for example, when we are helping our client to think through the possibility of reshoring, we always turn around and say, let's take a look at where your operations are. Are they in China? And if so, do you have a factory there and you employ people there? So that's the first place to start, because as you may know, in China, most workers are on an employment contract. And so if they've signed as, let's say you hire somebody, you know, last month and they're on a two year employment contract and then you decide to shut down your operations, you have to pay to the end of that contract, right? And not a, lot of, a lot of executives don't think about that or, you know, they're like, oh, there's cost, you know, involved. So, you know, that's one big hurdle. Another hurdle is getting a permit to leave. So as you know, you may know, it's not that easy to move out of China if the Chinese government doesn't want you to leave. So you have to get a permit to leave or close down your operations there. Um, And, you know, depending on what the Chinese government thinks about that or how, if they're worried about transferring the capability or the IP to China or keeping it there, then it may be very hard to get a permit now sure i mean you can get on an airplane and you know close the doors and turn off you know turn off the lights and get on an airplane and go home but if you do that and you violate a chinese law or a regulation you may never be allowed to come back and as we talked about before with the growth the enormous growth rate in asia you shouldn't shut that door, right? I mean, you know, you may want to come back at some point in the future. So that's, you know, another thing that's not not taken into consideration. And then the other the other thing that I I've had some tough conversations with CFOs about and that the machine tools, tools and dyes and mold things that you have either shipped to China and you have some contract that says you own this stuff or they were made for you in China. So this happens a lot too with molds, is they're much cheaper to be made in China. And so they're made in China, but you've paid for it. And so you think you own it, right? Wrong. <laughs> Gee, you know, even if you have it in your contracts, it's really, really hard to get that stuff out of China. It's really hard to export it. And so you may have to just write off all that investment. And here's the other problem is if you have uh, have outsourced the development of a mold or some kind of tool or something um, to a company in China, they own the blueprints, not you, right? So, you know, it's a complicated situation and may be very expensive as a result. So that's another another issue. And, you know, I could go on and on about leaving China. But, you know, you know, I would say the thing I would want people to take away is to to just understand that it's not going to be as easy as you think. And you probably need help to extract yourself from another country. You need to be careful
0: about it. Mm-hmm. And tell us maybe some case studies, because I know that you worked across you know, and you have a lot of, um, you know, examples and. I know we joked a little bit about about, about the big-ass fans and and, and so on, and and you work with G and you work with some of the global brands as well. So maybe give us one or two or three examples, you know, that that you've helped in recent times, what worked, what didn't work, what was challenged.
1: Sure. So let's take WaterLogic. That's the most recent case study. We have a, a huge website where we publish all of our research, all of our case studies that we develop, all of our white papers, everything's there And you can download all this stuff for free. So I would encourage people to go to the website, which is reshoringinstitute.org. But Waterlogic is the, if you look at our case study page, it's the first one that pops up. They are UK-based company. They make water purification equipment like a fill station. So like you fill up your water bottle at the airport, you know, with a fill station or in the break room. They make that purification equipment and they have a, an advanced technology that uses ultraviolet light to purify the water at the point of dispensing. So most water purification purifies further back in the process or in the pipe and they purify, purify at the point of dispensing, which makes the water much, much cleaner, much better. So, um, you know, it's really breakthrough kind of technology. So um, they are headquartered in the UK and they've done very well across Europe. They're well known and have extensive operations in Europe. Uh, and they were have been manufacturing in China. They have a very large factory in northern China. And they had sales offices all across the U.S., and the the sales were growing rapidly in the U.S., so it became a very popular item. And, you know, pure water, bottled water, filtered water is very, very popular in the U.S. So they came to us, and even though they had extensive sales operations across the U.S., they didn't have any manufacturing sites. So we helped them over about a year to not only find um, the the best location for them, but also to look at labor, labor costs, tax incentives, government sent incentives at the state and local level. so the u s. is different, you know other countries, their the main government or the what we would call the federal government provides incentives. But in the u s, it's almost all local. It's all local incentives, state incentives. So the setup is different. That means you have to, you know, look for 50 different states and, you know, all these local environments and it's much more complicated. So we did that. We also helped them um, find suppliers in the U.S. Like we were talking about before, your ecosystem has to come with you. So they were essentially sourcing everything from Chinese suppliers. So we had to find suppliers in the U.S. that could make some of their parts. And we helped them establish a new manufacturing site near the Dallas Fort Worth Airport, which is a huge international airport in the middle of the US. So you know that was a that was a big success story. And they did set up manufacturing, consolidated all their sales offices, and they're doing very well. Very well. Mm. Another uh, I'll tell you about a failure. How's that? So a couple of years ago. Yeah. We have some of those too. We didn't work on this one, but but I can tell you about it. So Otis Elevator, they make elevators. And there are only a few elevator companies in the world. And Otis was one of the big ones. They were manufacturing in Mexico and decided to set up uh, manufacturing operations in South Carolina, so the southern part of the U.S. And so they found a location in a little town called Florence, South Carolina, where they had a pretty high unemployment rate they had low labor costs they had incentives you know everything looked great and so they built a new factory and was automated and had a lot of new equipment in, in it and they sort of opened the doors and there were no workers so even though they had a high unemployment rate they didn't have workers with the right skills they needed you know, we were talking before about advanced manufacturing and skill, skillful jobs um, that require different kind of training. Well, they 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 just weren't there. And they this company, Otis, had not prepared very well. They hadn't tried to find training facilities so people could be trained to work in the factory. They just hadn't done that homework. And the other thing that they did is decided to implement SAP software at the same time so i know i know those of you who know sap know you know that was that's like wow really i worked for sap for five years and you know it's great software but it's it's complicated and it's not easy to install and to teach people how to use it so they tried to do that at the same time as they were opening a new factory which is just insane. <laughs> so, you know, they stumbled along for over a year. They lost $60 million. I think the CEO was fired. They were written about extensively in the Wall Street Journal about this as being a failure of reshoring. So they tried it, but they didn't plan very well for it. And that's, you know, that's the danger. If, you know, a company's going to try to move their manufacturing somewhere else or bring it back to the U.S., you it's hard work. <laughs> Right, it's a big project and it's hard work, and you can't—you don't just snap your fingers and make it happen. It really takes effort.
0: Mm. And I, I will want to to ask you, and and we have one side of the business that is executive search, and we get a lot of requests in recent times. Okay, digital skills in—you uh, know—Industry four point automation, robotics. Okay, get us the people. Well, yeah, you know, there's not a hell of a lot of them because. <laughs> One, these are fairly, I mean, okay, it's been talked a lot but for the last three, four years, these initiatives have been uh, present, but in, let's talk reality and pragmatically, it's not the uh, norm, and there's a lot of gaps in the market for that, and yes. I think there's another reality check that you mentioned that, yes, you bring back the jobs wherever it is, it's, okay, it's Western Europe, or or bring back manufacturing, let's call it not jobs, manufacturing, right, in Western Europe, or in US, or in this high cost markets, but the jobs are not the same. You know, when they left US, maybe you were working on the, I don't know, on the line. Now, you know, you come back, now you need to have robotics or automation skills. So let's talk a little bit about what new skills, even if you do reshore in this, you know, more expensive markets or or developed markets, what new skills will they need?
1: Yeah, so, you know, that's a really excellent point. I think, you know, my grandfather was a metal worker. They made drinking fountains at a company called Hazy Taylor in Warren, Ohio, in the Rust Belt of the U.S., the northern U.S. And I can remember he'd come home from work and he was dirty and smelly and, you know, his hands were dirty and his fingernails. And it was kind of gross, you know. That was my perception of manufacturing, you know. He was in manufacturing. and. You know, I think about that sometimes because fast forward to today, that is not at all what manufacturing looks like anymore, right? I mean, I live here in Silicon Valley, and if you go to a manufacturing site here, you have to get in a bunny suit, you know, a a complete electrostatic suit and, you know, headgear, sometimes respirators, if, you know, if there is a, if they're worried about the the air particles when developing wafers or something like that. And, you know, by and large, most manufacturing, and I think this is true around the world, most manufacturing involves computers of some kind or another. So you might be running a machine tool, but you have to program that machine tool or you may be running a robot that is you know welding on the line, but you have to know how to fix that robot if it breaks or it does the wrong thing. or you know run a 3D printer or something like that. So yeah, I mean, exactly. The skills have changed. and I think you know education has to change along with it. In some cases, it's not a jobs problem. It's an education and skills problem. That we need to address, and you know, move up the sophistication level in in the manufacturing environment. You know, if you've got kids, and I know you do, you know, encouraging them to focus on STEM education, I think is very good. So science and technology and mathematics, this is important because those are we're, we're leaning towards most more of those kind of skills in a manufacturing environment than other kind of soft skills. Um, so it's good to learn the arts and and to learn um communications and you know uh, music and other things too but if you plan to be in an industrial environment in your life whether you're the ceo or you know senior executive in supply chain or you're a worker you you need to know mathematics you know, it's odd. You have to think that there's actually a lot of geometry in mathematics. You're dealing with planes and angles and, you know, calculations on a, on a production line. <laughs> so it's surprising how much math you actually re- really need to know in order to even operate on most production lines.
0: No, and this, this kind of brings us to, to the failure case study that, that you mentioned, that a lot of people kind of fail to plan for that talent piece. Okay, great. You moved, but you know, do you actually have the people to to do the work? Yeah. Do you have them trained? Do they have the skills? Do they know how to do it? Because, uh, yeah, that that is not uh, always there. We've we've done a lot of work. So, f- for example, Vietnam, and I actually I want to pick your brains also on this one. Vietnam has grown tremendously, even now from a GDP pers- GDP perspective, they're also like defying gravity. They're still growing, and there's been a, a huge shift of manufacturing into Vietnam from China. Obviously, maintaining proportions, because when you have 100 million or so in Vietnam and you have one point something billion in China, you know, it's not possible to go all of it. But I think that that's one way to kind of avoid some of the trade tariffs and and all of that. But the situation now in Vietnam is that you can't find blue collar workers anymore. You know, they need to get them from Cambodia, literally don't have workforce anymore for how much has changed and has influxed into the country. Now my yeah. question is also.
1: No, I was just gonna say I, I worked with athletic shoe manufacturer a couple of years ago that had factories all across China. I went and visited all their factories in China and Vietnam, and yeah, you're right. I mean Vietnam only has ninety or a hundred million people, and they're sort of full. <laughs> you know, they're all they're busy, and there isn't any. Factory capability or not much left, and the other thing that we found was even though the labor cost was lower in Vietnam, the productivity rate was lower. Right. So, in I don't the company I was working with, I don't think they knew that. And so we, you know, I pointed out to them. I mean, if you're looking at comparing costs, the cost in China, while labor was uh, maybe 20 or 30 percent more, the productivity was much higher and the quality was better. So. If you you know are balancing that out with what you're capable of doing in Vietnam, it turned out that it wasn't. It actually wasn't cheaper in Vietnam. It was more expensive. You can't just make broad assumptions about what is or what isn't. All companies and industries are different, and you have to look at them one by one, right? So you can. Mm. There's some trend stuff out there, but you know, by and large, every company is individual, and you have to think about it as an individual.
0: And I, I want to ask a final question, Rosemary. And, and I can ask to you because you are, you know, you're not working for a big corporation or MNC, so you, yeah, you can address such uh, elephants in the room. And you sit in in the U.S., so I don't want to get very political. But the question goes like this: Depending on your election that is coming up and the result of that elections, do you see much shift into the? I mean, let's say that if you change the administration, do you see a shift in which? This decoupling will be slower or the rhetoric will be a little bit softer and and, and it will slow down a little bit. Or you see the direction in the same way in which, okay, this is happening is just, you know, different administrations won't change much.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't I don't think it's any secret that Donald Trump is a transactional kind of guy. I mean, he thinks about dollars and cents and doesn't really have context when it comes to policy and and global economic development. He doesn't really have that understanding. So I think if we do have a a regime change, we have a, a new president, President Biden, I think we'll see a softening of the rhetoric and not so much trying to pick fights, but instead, you know, reigniting of the good relationships that we have around the world and together, you know, putting America back in sync with Europe and together addressing some of the issues within China. So, you know, it's not that, you know, in my opinion, we shouldn't be fighting with China. I mean, there are some things, technologies, and that we should be cooperating, right? We should develop together for the good of humanity. You know, there are certain things that you know we shouldn't be competing or fighting with over. We need to be more cooperative. But on the other hand, you know, we know that China has some issues as well, and those need to be addressed. I like to say, we need more diplomacy and less lunacy <laughs> so i, I don't know, that's maybe <laughs> a little political but yeah i mean you know each we, we try to be apolitical at the reshoring institute too but you know when bottom bottom line is there is so much politics and economics involved with any decision that's made with leadership that it's important we have a voice and keep guiding our leaders in, in what's needed in global manufacturing
0: Hmm. Well, Rosemary, on that note, I want to thank you a lot for all the insights. We've had some incredible feedback also on the comments. You'll see after this is finished and lots of people that enjoyed the conversation uh, very much. And and thanks for keeping it practical, you know, with pluses, with minuses, with failures, with successes. And I think you yeah. gave a very good overview of, of and, and reality check because i can tell you for sure where i sit as a i mean also we are consulting but maybe from a leadership or human capital perspective a lot of people think it's easy to do you know to do things and to to move around or maybe not as complicated as it is actually maybe it's not easy but they think it's not as complex and they should really readjust their mental <laughs> frames so thank you very much and really it was a great sharing session
1: sure thank you radu
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcottglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five Star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course contact us as well to find out how we can help.